it's really easy for your intention to go from wanting to have an impact and make a difference to gaining more attention. And so I believe we all have a higher and a lower self. And every single day I have to choose to invest and focus on my higher self because otherwise it's so easy for my lower self to take control. Welcome to Hanakuma's Good Trouble, where we celebrate those who have the courage to disrupt the norm. I'm Nick Kyrgios, professional tennis player and your host. In each episode, we'll sit down with game changers who aren't afraid to rock the boat. We'll dig into their stories and the waves they've made in their worlds for the better. On this episode, I have the pleasure of sitting with Jay Shetty, the monk atop the proverbial media mountain, from finance to monastery, armed with a pen, a purpose, and a podcast, not so coincidentally called On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Over 7 billion YouTube views, 6 million Instagram followers, a shorty and streamy award winner, and a New York Times bestseller. One would think the journey our guest has taken was his intention all along. A mixture of good troubles that have allowed him to provide the world with the monk mindset, a tool to make wisdom go viral. Jay, thanks for giving the world a chance to think like a monk. If you had to meditate on it, what does good trouble mean to you? Oh, Nick, thanks for having me, man. It's, uh, That's good my favorite here. intro so far. That's a great intro. Thank you so much. Very, very kind. I love good trouble. I think that Good trouble means embracing mistakes. It means embracing failures. It means taking risks. It means trying out things when you have no idea what the result is going to be. It means allowing yourself to have flaws and imperfections authentically. Yep. And it means ultimately having a great time whilst navigating this crazy life that we all live. So obviously in my position, with all the outside noise in my career, the ups and downs, I guess when you were you know, doing what you once did and then you decided to take a sharp turn in your career or life per se, was there much outside noise for you that you had to deal with personally and how did you deal with that? Yeah, I grew up with a lot of expectations in life. My family were immigrants to England. My mum moved to London when she was 16 years old. Yep. And she found a way to pay her bills. My mm -hmm. dad moved when he married my mom and they both worked day and night to provide for me and my sister. There were expectations of you need to get a good career, you need to get a good job, mm -hmm. you need to pay the bills and all of the things that come with that. And for me, that noise was propelling my work ethic. Yep. So I was doing well at school, I was getting good grades, I was working as hard as I could. Mm -hmm. But I always felt like there was this inner voice since I was like 14 was when I really started to listen to it. Mm -hmm. That was telling me to do things that I cared about, to focus on subjects at school that I was passionate about. Yep. But at the same time, the outside noise would be, well, all your cousins are going to be doctors. Yes. All your other cousins are going to be lawyers or engineers, and they're all doing these amazing careers. And that was scary for me because those weren't the paths that I saw for myself. And so then on top of that, when I decide that I'm going to become a monk, which is the last thing that my family would have thought, yes, that was such a shock and surprise to my family that the noise was, well, you're committing career suicide. You're never gonna get a job again. Who's gonna marry you if it doesn't work out? Yep all of these doubts that they had and everyone saying to me, I've let my parents down. It's the worst decision I could possibly make. And it was seen as the worst decision of my life wow. by the people around me. 
did you have any like fellow monks that you looked up to or fellow people that you were like, okay, that's kind of who I want to be or how, who to learn off? Like, was there anyone like that? No kid grows up thinking I'm going to be a monk. Yep. And so I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to be a monk. I grew up thinking that I was trying to get a good job yep. to pay the bills, start a family and live a pretty normal life. Mm -hmm. But my life changed when I met a monk at college who was giving a talk. Who's your favorite tennis player, by the way? Uh, Joe Wilfred Songer. He was like, he was one of my idols. I didn't have too many. And I've spoken about this. Like you definitely need someone I feel to inspire to be like or learn off. And I thought I didn't have one, but I secretly modeled myself, my game style around him. Did you ever meet him? I did. I was 12 and I went to every single one of his practices for a week. At the eight, and I got a new ball sign every day, but I don't know why I was doing that because I just loved his energy. So imagine the same as me, right? Same yep. feeling. And yep. I was an 18 year old kid. Yep who kept going to every lecture this guy gave oh. because I just loved his energy. Yep. And I just wanted to be like him. He was so happy. He was so thoughtful. He was masterful in how he presented ancient wisdom. And mm. I was just attracted to him. I just thought, I just want to be around this guy. Yep. And it's the same feeling you had. Yep. And so I like to demystify it by saying that, yes, it was a monk and yes, he was spiritual. But when I was 18, yep. I'd met people who were rich, I'd met people who were famous, and I'd met people who were powerful, but I don't think I'd met anyone who was truly happy. Wow. And when I met him and I sat with him, he was genuinely content. And even now, I was literally with him last week, I don't know anyone more content and fulfilled and happy than he is when I'm spending time with him. I feel that way. Like I'm, I'm 28 now, I've traveled around the world, met some amazing people, rich, famous, powerful, but then I kind of get that vibe with you. It's like, this is the first day that we've spoken. I feel that energy around you. I genuinely mean that. Like I haven't met too many people where I feel super comfortable straight off the bat. That's special, man. Thank it you, really man. Is. You make it easy too. I think, <laughs> I think it's a two-way thing. I was telling you earlier that one of my favorite people that's been on my podcast, Ray Dalio, came mm. on and he said to me after the interview, he was like, we just made mu music together. Yeah. And I always think of relationships like that now that he said that, where I'm like, or if we're playing music, you've got your instrument, I've got mine. Yep. And if anyone's feeling a sense of ease or comfort, yep. it's something that both people have to open up to. And I wish, I really hope that the world does that more for each other. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're good at making people feel awkward or yeah. uncomfortable. Yep. And the best thing in the world is when you meet someone and you feel a sense of familiarity or yep. home, yep. every human being on the planet- Wants is, to feel that way. Wants to feel that. It's craving that feeling of like, when's someone gonna make me feel like I'm home? So in such a fast paced world, so when you decided to come back, well, stop being a monk, per se, and you came back to kind of real life in a way. What was that like for you? It was literally the most difficult thing. So I was a monk for three years. I lived across India, the UK and Europe in different yep. monasteries. And when you're living as a monk, you're disconnected mainly from knowing what's in the news. And yep. I didn't know who won the World Cup or well, I didn't know what was happening. I was sleeping on the floor. You're waking up at 4 a.m. every day. Most of your day is meditating and then serving or helping communities. And so you're quite disconnected from even aging. What's right. really interesting is like when people grow up, it's like you get a job and then you get yep. into a relationship and then you get a mortgage or rent or you have all these things that come with age. But as a monk, you don't really age because you're just focusing on yourself. And so when I came back, it was the first time I started to think about how old I was. And so I came back just a bit younger than you. I came back at like 25 going yep. on 26. And now I was like, oh gosh, all my mates are in relationships. Yep. All my mates are renting a nice apartment. Mm -hmm. All my mates have nice jobs and I'm behind. And so I was feeling really behind and I was feeling yep. like I wasted three years maybe because that's what everyone was saying to me. When I came back, everyone said, we told you so. 
We knew you weren't going to make it as a monk. We knew you weren't spiritual enough. You weren't pure enough. You weren't well. committed enough. And for me, it was really hard because I was moving back in with my parents mm -hmm. and feeling like I'd failed at something I cared about. And I'll be honest and say it was the closest I ever felt to being depressed. I remember the first month I came back, I was just sleeping all day. I was sleeping late. I was watching TV again. Mm -hmm. I binge watched every season of How I Met Your Mother. Well. I was listening to Drake again. <laughs> I was like just eating all the stuff. I was basically breaking every monk habit yeah. that I'd worked so hard to develop because I was almost so upset at myself that I'd let it go. Do you think the disappointment from the other people and what they said to you made you that way for a bit? Yeah, I think it was disappointment from other people and disappointment of myself. I felt like I had this dream since I was 18 years old to become a monk. Yep. And then all of a sudden I couldn't do it anymore. There were many reasons. It was my health. Mm -hmm. It was very challenging. Like, yep. I don't think people fully understand when you're living a monk life, you live communally. Yep. You don't have a bed that's yours. You eat whenever you're given food and it, it's rough and tough in, in many ways. And at the same time, I also went through this inner calling of maybe I want to do something else with my life. I was actually quite rebellious as a monk in the sense of my ideas and yep. values. And so I also realized that I wasn't meant to be a monk for my whole life, but it was really powerful for Big those learning three process years. Yeah, for you. exactly. Because that's the hardest thing. Like sometimes I come back from like a tournament and I get back to my normal life and I'm so caught up in what I just achieved or what I was doing that I can't, I'm, I'm like an autopilot. I'd literally forgotten how to do small talk. Because as a monk, you don't really ask people like, hey, how's it going? What you been up to? Like, that's not a conversation you have. Yeah. And so I felt really scared being in social atmospheres yeah. because I almost didn't know how to interact. And I'd given up drinking alcohol and I still don't drink, drink alcohol today. Yeah. But I was like, if I go into a social atmosphere and I'm not drinking, like, am I going to be able to start a conversation or am I going to be unrelatable? Like, how do I fit in again? And actually, those were all great things for me because mm -hmm. I had to play to my strengths. And I had to go back in and just be myself because I didn't have anything else to go off of. So I try and find someone that I could have a deep conversation with, yep. or I try and have a conversation with someone who wanted to be curious about meditation and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And so even the life I live today is so much based on the fact that I've come back into the world very clear about my values and very yes. clear about my goals. And that way I attract and end up spending time with people who care about those things as well. I guess we spoke a little bit about it, but have you ever faced like backlash or controversy? Because I've dealt with my fair share of bad media, you know, from back home in Australia. So like, did you deal with anything like that? The reason I wrote a book called Think Like a Monk and Not Live Like a Monk was because I believe that anyone can learn to think like a monk, even if they don't live like one. Mm. And I think it was hard enough for me to wrap my head around wait a minute, I went from having no money and no businesses to now having money and running businesses yep. that I can totally empathize with how hard that was for everyone watching from the outside. And so it was really fascinating for me to rewire my relationship with money. So I grew up in a family and a community where if someone had money, you'd say, oh yeah, yeah, they're doing shady stuff yep. to get it. And so my viewpoint was anyone who had money was doing bad stuff. Yep. And so for me to recognize that money was energy, that money was something that was a tool. It wasn't the goal and yep. it wasn't the devil. It was energy that could be used to help people or hurt people. It makes you, I feel like money gives you the chance to be more of who you are. I actually have spent my entire life trying to be something that I'm not, which was trying to be a classy tennis player, carrying myself like a true gentleman, which I am, but on the court, I'm not. So it's like, that was against the grain for me. But then when I started just being myself, I was started finding some happiness. But 
I guess for you, it was like just you wanting to be who you truly were was against the grain, right? Like you wanting to become a monk wasn't against the grain for you. That's who you thought you wanted. That, that was you. That's such an interesting way of looking at it. What you're saying is what we're doing is against the grain of society, but it's actually not against the grain of our heart. Yep. Like you being rebellious is not against the grain of you. No. I've realized that listening to your heart and following your inner voice often looks externally like going against the grain. And that's when I realized it, that if I truly wanted to live a life according to what I genuinely believed was right, chances are it wouldn't make sense to other people mm. because society is telling everyone to live the same life. And so as soon as you get someone who's independently thoughtful, against the grain. it's against the grain. That's why some of the people who've made the biggest changes in the world, not talking about myself, talking about people that I look up to and admire, often they've been seen as crazy or insane or ridiculous yep. when they started to do what they did. So what would you, like what would your advice to someone that wants to do something completely different to what they're supposed to do, what would you tell those people? Because I, I have friends that they hate what they do, but they're so much pressure and I guess expectation on supposedly being successful in that field, but they're miserable. Yeah. So you can't quit something unless you have found a replacement for it. And so most of us who are stuck in a job we don't love or a relationship that's toxic, it's hard to cut it and let go because you don't know what's next. Mm -hmm. And that uncertainty keeps you locked into the bad certainty. There's a beautiful quote from Thich Nhat Hanh where he said, we'd rather accept familiar pain than unfamiliar pain, mm. right? If we know something's bad, we'd rather know that we have it than the bad of not knowing not what's knowing. coming next. So in order to get around that psychological setup in our brain, what we need to do is research, learn and experiment about the things that we're curious about. I think a lot of us would rather waste our weekend trying to forget about how we feel or mm. how bad the week was rather than say, you know what, I'm going to use my weekend to be curious and experiment and explore about the stuff I think I love. So that would be the first step. The second thing I'd say is get good at it. I think we talk a lot about people chasing their passion, mm. but we don't talk about people actually getting good at stuff. And I think if you get better at the things you love, if you get better at the things you're curious about, you start to think this could be real. We were just talking about it outside. Mm. I spent nine months doing live interviews every single day <laughs> when I first started interviewing. There's no substitute for that experience. You yep. can't buy that in a, no. a book or a bottle or whatever it may be. You have to do the work. And I find that if people do more uncomfortable things, they'll actually get better at dealing with the stresses and challenges that come with trying something new. And if you weren't doing what you do now with all these business ventures, your podcast, do you think you'd still be at the monastery? You know what? The monk was like, that was me aspiring to be something that I wasn't meant to be long-term. Yep. And I don't look back at it anymore as a failure. I look back at it as going to school. And my monk teachers would always say, some people go to school and become professors or some people go to school and leave and become entrepreneurs. And mm -hmm. neither is better or worse. So I go back every year and try and spend, depending on the year, it could be two weeks to a month living again with the monks. I need to do that for myself because yep. I find that 
I'm trying to give and help and support and serve all year and I need to go and get for myself and that's where I charge up. Mm -hmm. I kind of know what that's like. Like I have my recharges, like I love playing basketball. I love gaming. These are all like little moments in time where I feel like I'm recharging myself. How important is it to have those recharge times? If you're not recharging, then there's no way that you're giving the best of yourself to anyone. You're just giving people your leftovers. And I find that we all want to put other people first. We all want to put our family first. We want to put our partner first. But you can't really put them first because that now means that you're second or third or fourth on that list, which means you have no energy to give them. You have no capacity for love to offer them. And the reason why so many of us struggle is because we're drained of love. We're drained of empathy we're drained of compassion because we're giving so much to everyone else that we're exhausted mm. and when you're exhausted you're at your worst yeah i find that taking care of myself is not a selfish act if i'm taking care of myself so that i can serve others and that's the magic of it that putting yourself first is not because everyone else is second putting yourself first is so that you can keep pouring in and giving to other people and so for me, that recharge is a number one priority. And I feel everyone needs to find what their recharge is. It doesn't have to be the same as what mine is, yeah. but everyone needs a recharge for sure. So interesting. That's the first time I've ever heard someone speak about it in that way. That's incredible, powerful. So for me, like getting angry or to the world, breaking a racket, what would that be like for you in your profession? Like just like, so when you were in the monastery as a yeah. monk, like what would you yeah, yeah, yeah. try and relate to as you breaking a racket or losing <laughs> concentration for a second? Like, what was that like? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It would be, this is such a great question. It would be mentally criticizing and judging every other monk <laughs> and not saying it, like yeah. holding back on it, but in your head just going, oh, you're just completely destroying someone and yeah. knowing it's the wrong thing to do. So yeah. you never did that? No, no, I did that oh, okay. all the time. Yeah, I did that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah no, right. I definitely yeah. did that. I would, def I would sit there and criticize the monks in my head all yeah. the time. But now I'm trying to think even now, I also do it in sports and that's why I could empathize with you in sports. So I play football every time I go back to London with yeah. my mates. My mates know that I am the loudest mouth on the pitch. Yeah. So I'm the person giving everyone their orders, yeah. telling everyone what position they're playing, telling everyone what they're getting wrong. I'm the loudest guy because I love winning. Yeah. I'm super competitive. And I know that I've got to organize everyone on there. Otherwise everyone's going to be lazy and I don't like laziness. So for me, I enjoy sport as a great outlet yeah. for that raw passion and energy. I couldn't see you losing your shit like I do though. No, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that would be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would enjoy it. No, it would stress me out. It would stress me out. Me and my wife went to a, a rage room. Oh, yeah? And oh, so yeah, a rage breaking room, stuff, right? Yeah, so yeah. a rage room is they give you a baseball bat and then they give you a room where there's all this broken stuff and you get to break it even yeah. more. I felt stressed because they said if you're not stressed when you go in, yeah, yeah, you leave with anti stress. Effect, yeah. Yeah, or but when you go in when you're stressed, if your boyfriend broke up with you or something yeah, like yeah. that, which is what they were telling me, if you go in with that mindset, then it's amazing. Yep. So yeah, I think I'm generally pretty calm and so <laughs> I get more stressed. So yeah, if I broke as many rackets as you did. I'd stress for it. Yeah, I'd hilarious. get stressed out. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So this is more of a personal question for me, but how much did your partner that, like your wife now, like when did you kind of meet her? Was it after, I'm guessing you were a monk. So how many years after that? Like how did you guys connect and... How did that help you do what you do now? We'd met probably a year before I became a monk, but I started dating her probably six months after I left the monastery because yeah. her and my sister were really good mates. Yeah. So she was at my house all the time. Mm -hmm. 
And I honestly feel that being with her saved me from going further into depression because there was someone who saw potential in me. Mm -hmm. There was someone who was attracted to me. There was someone who felt that I had something to offer the world. She was interested by my experience and what I'd learned. And almost it gave me a sense of value mm -hmm. and a sense of significance for who I really was. Because at that time I didn't have anything to give her. Like I didn't have a job. Yep. I was literally like trying to save up whatever I could from the little bit of work I was doing to pay for dates. I didn't, I couldn't take her out anywhere fancy or yep. I had nothing to show off with. I didn't have cool clothes. Yep. I was still growing my hair back. Yep. Like I didn't have anything that was going for me. And so I always say that my wife truly only got me. And the fact that she fell in love with me has always been such a superpower for me to really? feel a strength that I have. Because now that my life has changed and I'm very grateful to yep. live a abundant life, my wife never met me as that guy. She just met me as the guy who was $25,000 in debt, yep. didn't have a job lined up or any potential job and had been a monk for three years. So she met a very, a very raw, real version of me. But how have you how do you handle like the fame and how have you stayed true to yourself with the values that you were, you grew up with? Like, how have you done that? I think one of the biggest things is I spend probably around 10 to 12 minutes a day refining my intention. And what I mean by that is it's really easy for your intention to go from wanting to have an impact and make a difference to gaining more attention or making more money or trying to figure out your way to something else. Mm -hmm. And I think my process every day is what I describe as seeds and weeds. So how do I plant more seeds mm. of goodness and greatness in my life and avoid the weeds of negativity, attention and control and power that we all seek. And so I believe we all have a higher and a lower self. And every single day I have to choose to invest and focus on my higher self because otherwise it's so easy for my lower self to take control. And now I'm lucky, I got raised well, I had good parents, I had good morals and values growing up, so it's easier to go back to, but I have to keep doing that. And a big part of that for me, honestly, is reconnecting with my monk teachers mm -hmm. who don't care about what I achieve or don't care about what I've accomplished. They only care about who I am. And by the way, my wife's the same. Right, we were just talking about it. My wife is the best reminder to me mm -hmm. of I love you for who you are, not what you have. And I think sometimes people need to love you in that way for you to love yourself for the same thing. Because we start loving ourselves for how many awards we have and how much money we make. I'm like a sponge with you. I'm already taking many things I'm going to go back and try and implement in my life. How have you made sure that you've stayed true to that? Because you could just not go back on all your values and just optimize all the money type of stuff. What makes you continue to do it right. I'll be honest and say to you though, Nick as well, is that I probably have made mistakes too. Like I think I've realized that I want to try and do things right. And the way to do that is to put checking systems and processes in. Mm -hmm. And the way I look at things now, I have this rule that I call energy strategy money. And what I mean by that is if I'm looking at a venture, if I'm looking at an idea, the first thing I ask myself is, is this energetically right? Do I like the energy of this? Is the energy of this impact, upliftment and positivity? 
okay, great. If the energy is right, let's look at the strategy. Mm -hmm. Do we know how we're going to execute this? And finally, does the money align with this? Yes. And I think that checking system is supporting me in making better decisions. Does that mean I always make the perfect decisions? No, but at least I have a method that I follow that helps me break it down. I'm sure many people think you have the answer to everything, but you've told me that you don't really know. So things in your life that are unknown, you don't know what you're going to be doing or it's unknown. Like how do you continue to move forward with such like positivity into the unknown? It's a great question. Great. It's such a great question. I don't know how long I'll be playing tennis for. Like I know people want me to play for the next five years. You look at Djokovic, these guys that are playing till like 36, 37, you got athletes like LeBron 39 and I'm 28. And a lot of this for me feels a bit unknown. Like I didn't know that I was going to be sitting here interviewing such successful people and down to earth people. And I just keep putting my foot in front of the other. I don't really know which direction I'm going to go. I'm just going with the flow a little bit. My tennis career is, for me, I know that it's on the back end, but I still don't know how much time. And I just feel like nothing's for certain in my career. And do you feel like that? How do you move forward? Totally. When I first started my career, I only did social media because no one would give me a traditional shot. So like no one would give me a platform because I didn't have a communications degree or a journalism background. And so I started making videos, not because I wanted to do social media, but just yep. that was the only outlet. Yep. And then everyone's like, Jay, people only watch your videos for four minutes. So then we launched a podcast. Yep. And everyone's like, Jay, people listen to your podcast, but no one wants to read what you have to say. And then yep. I wrote a book. So if someone told me at the beginning of my journey that what I'm doing today is what I was going to be doing, I wouldn't have believed it. And so I think... The fact that you've done things without knowing is what gives you faith to keep doing things without knowing. Yep. The best example I can give you is I had the honor of doing one of the last interviews that Kobe Bryant ever did. Wow. And I didn't know it was going to be one of the last interviews he ever did. And he was retired when I interviewed him. I can imagine retiring is one of the hardest things. It's all yep. you've known for two decades of your life, if not more. And he was one of the most peacefully retired athletes I've ever met. And the reason was he loved how his life and his experience could be turned into storytelling. And he wanted to inspire the next generation. So he was making TV and film. And he wrote a book. And writing yeah, yeah, yeah. to inspire other people. And what I loved about that was he was at so much peace because I realized he didn't see basketball as his purpose. Mm. You don't see tennis yep. as your purpose. It is a medium. I don't see being a podcaster as my purpose. That is just one method of yep. communication. And whether it's books, whether it's podcasts, whether it's AI or VR yep. in the future, I have no idea. My goal is simply to learn, to experiment and to share. And as long as I can do those three things, I'll be happy. Yep. And I think the world has made us convinced that your title or your profession is your purpose. Yeah, that's like the only thing you're good at. And I feel like if you were asked to describe who you are at your depths, you wouldn't say I'm a tennis player. Yeah. There'd be so much more you'd say about yourself. But only people have the patience to hear the tennis player. And I guess what advice would you give to someone in the midst of like a critical life decision? I think as humans, we focus far too much on making the right decision rather than moving in the right direction. The decision you make in that moment is not good or bad, mm. but the direction you're moving in is far more important. And so we put so much pressure on, am I doing the right thing? Is this the best thing for me? And the truth is you don't know. At the, yeah, you don't At know. At the time, you don't know. You might say it years down the track. 
Totally. All you can do is make a choice and then make that choice the best choice you could have made. And so I would put more effort into the work that happens after a choice mm. than all the effort you put into making that choice. When, when you started achieving all these things, did people start listening to you more? I would have taken advice from you before you had become so successful because you had all these thoughts and feelings, obviously. Why do you have to become so, I guess, famous or of status to, for good trouble to be relevant? What's really interesting is that everyone who's got 30 people started at three people and started at zero. And so the real genius is in spotting talent or ability early. And I think that requires us to remain random and open when success teaches you to be kind of restricted. Yeah. So I think if we lived our life thinking, I don't need to value someone because other people see them as valuable. If I can live my life just being present with this person and if they have some value to offer, then maybe I just discovered someone who tomorrow is going to be really successful. Yep. And even if they aren't, sometimes the most successful people in the world, barely anyone knows them. Like I think about it with some of my monk teachers, they've impacted millions, but people don't know them. And so what I like to focus on is what is the goodness and the greatness that I can take from each and every person I meet, whether they are known or not known. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that's a metric of success, but it's not the metric of success. I feel like that's part of me is like, I love just having fun with anyone. Yeah. I, I, if I can learn something off you, great. But if your energy is good, yeah. then let's just get to know each other and, and help each other. And I think that's a big thing because I see it all the time. Successful people, they become sh like, not shallow, but they become so shielded and they don't like being vulnerable when they're missing out of the best parts yeah. of relationships and friends and partners and, and everything. So Such a great point. So what are, like, what are other techniques, like not just meditation, like what do you, you've told me that you take like, you know, 10 to 12 minutes a day. Because I know there's so many athletes out there that... I can't meditate. Like I have so many thoughts. I have so many like, I'm anxious about playing, training, whatever. But like what other techniques would you tell people to try? Yeah. Breath work is very well documented. So I, let me talk a little bit about it from my perspective. So I was watching a 10 year old monk teach younger monks because kids in India become monks at yep. an early age if you're part of a community or tradition. And when I asked him what he was teaching them, he said it was their first day of school and he was teaching them how to breathe. And I said, what do you mean teaching them how to breathe? And he said, we teach them how to breathe because the only thing that stays with you from the moment you're born to the moment you die is your breath. And he said, what changes when you're happy? Your breath. What changes when you're sad? Your breath. What changes when you're anxious? Your breath. He said, your breath is the one thing that if you master, it helps you master every emotion. And so for me, breath work is not just about a number of inhales and exhales. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that every single emotion we experience is tied to our breath, whether we're sad or happy, whether we're stressed or anxious, whether we're elated and ecstatic, or whether you're having the worst day of your life, your breath changes. And so I think learning to master your breath is learning to master every emotion. Mm -hmm. Something that I know a lot of athletes that I've worked with in the past use very effectively is visualization. Now, people often think visualization is you visualizing the perfect outcome, mm. visualizing yourself winning Wimbledon. Yep. And that's not what I'm talking about. Visualization is what you do as almost a dress rehearsal in your mind. So if you struggle getting up in the morning, you want to sit in your bed and visualize yourself waking up at 5 a.m., putting on your shoes and then going out to play. I'll often work with clients 
and we'll be sitting in their bedroom and I'll say to them, okay, imagine it's 5 a.m., you wake up, what's the first thing you want to feel when your feet hit the ground to make it easy? All right, I want to feel my slippers. All right, let's put your slippers right there now. Okay, now where's the first place you're going to walk to and what's the first thing you're going to see and does that inspire you or does it exhaust you? For a lot of people, it's their phone. Okay, how are we going to replace that with a quote that you love or a picture mm -hmm. of your family because that's what motivates you? Let's put it there right now. So what we're doing is we're almost building a dress rehearsal of how they want their day to start and how they want that routine to build. To me, that's been the biggest help in transforming my mindset and people that I know because whether it's David Beckham scoring a free kick yep. or whether it's Lewis Hamilton driving a perfect track mm -hmm. they're visualizing the track in their mind the night before or they're visualizing getting a free kick and the ball how's it going to curve and how's it going to move into that corner not because they're visualizing the result but they're visualizing the process and the best and the best chance it. to succeed exactly so if you visualized yourself getting agitated you'll be better prepared I'll, I'll give you a silly silly example i was going uh, skydiving a few years ago one of my mates asked me to go with him and out of peer pressure i said yes so i went along and the whole night what i did was i watched skydiving videos and i visualized myself skydiving <laughs> i felt sick in my visualization seven times like i felt like throwing up but the last time i didn't feel sick anymore And so when I went up in the plane, I didn't feel sick anymore because I'd already gone through that sickness in my visualization. Wow. So you can often condition your body and your mind to go through pain before you go through it. And now that your body and mind have anticipated and lived through it, it affects you less in reality. I'm still not going skydiving. <laughs> no way. That's not happening. So how was it? Did you it, was, it was amazing. It was incredible. No, it was a fascinating experience. No way. Yeah. No way. <laughs> You have to do it. Next time you no, buy it, the place to I'm do I'm not it. doing it. There's no chance. <laughs> no. I don't, I'm not disciplined enough to do the visualize. I'll, I'll visualize it all day. I'm still not doing it. <laughs>